all sorts of people uh, who didn't speak a word of Yiddish would go, would attend Yiddish theater. European royalty saw the Dimmick. Bing Crosby saw the Yiddish theater in New York. Uh, Paul Robeson saw Yiddish theater. Al Capone loved Molly Peacock. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Movies are time machines that can take us back to our own heritages. I talked to Yiddish actor Alan Lewis Rickman about Kino Lorber's collection of Yiddish language films. And Ned Thanhauser grew up with a long-gone studio's name. Now he's sharing that studio's surviving heritage. But first, you can't travel in a time machine without a ticket. And that's what Nitrateville Radio is, your ticket to cinema's past. Please make sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Abi gesund. Give me the Psyle, Leye Baschano! In the Dibbuk, a rabbinical student dabbling in Kabbalah calls on Satan to give him the girl he loves. In Tevya, the milkman played by Maurice Schwartz greets his much beloved family. From the supernatural to the everyday, that's the old world Jewish life that the short-lived era of Yiddish language filmmaking captured. Now 10 of these Yiddish films, made between 1935 and 1949, come together in a new Blu-ray set from Lobster Films and Kino Lorber, The Jewish Soul, 10 Classics of Yiddish Cinema. Alan Lewis Rickman is a Yiddish actor on the stage, and he encountered a Dybbuk himself in the Yiddish prologue to the Coen Brothers movie A Serious Man. In English, you might know him from Boardwalk Empire and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, in which he played Red Skelton. But he's also a scholar who provided new subtitle translations for most of the films in the Jewish soul set. We spoke from his home in New York City, and I started by asking, so what's the market for Yiddish actors these days? It's uh, larger than you might think. It's not what 
You know, when we think about uh, Yiddish film, Yiddish theater, uh, the first thing we think of is is the heyday, the glory days, and those are long, long gone, so we think there's nothing left. Well, there isn't nothing left, and because the pool actually is so much smaller, I get a lot more calls (laughs) than I might otherwise. Yeah, I saw that you did did a uh, version of of Tevya stories that is not Fiddler on the Roof, mm-hmm. and also something with the delightful name Kvetches of 1932. Yes. <laughs> yes. We have a couple of shows that we do, myself and my wife Yelena and our friends Shane Baker and Steve Sterner, uh, that we tour around with. One is called The Essence of Yiddish Theater Dim Sum, which is a fast, wise-ass-ish introduction to Yiddish theater, Yiddish culture. And then we do Tevya Served Raw, which is Sort of similar to Schwartz's Tevye in that it's the real stuff, not Fiddler. The real Shalom Aleichem version of that material, not Fiddler. Uh, and then Kvetch's 1932, which is shameless vaudeville. Okay. In- including a lot of material, what they call Jewface, which is, you know, <laughs> English language, ethnic humor. But my background's film, actually. I was a filmmaker in college, a film major in college. Rather. Did you grow up speaking Yiddish? Did you have to pick it up at some point my folks spoke it they didn't speak to me in yiddish but at the same time they didn't use it as is so common for secrets you know that's that's common so often with not just with yiddish but also with italian with other languages i'm sure where parents don't want the kids to understand they speak their private secret language my folks never did that they just spoke the language around me not to me and i sort of i developed an interest in it ask how do you say this or what does that mean and little by little i picked it up and i guess i was an adolescent when i started actually uh, speaking of to you, what was the advantage of of picking up this, you know, what had to be kind of an archaic and dying language to the average teenager's mind? <laughs> well, I wasn't an average teenager. I'll confess. Uh, my my friends were listening to I don't know Deep Purple and the Who and whatever. <laughs> I was listening to the Ink Spots and the Andrew Sisters. So yeah, you get the. Not to say I wasn't listening to rock and roll at the same time, but even that, the rock and roll that I was listening to, aside from the Beatles, was the Turtles and the Raspberries, who I was massively devoted to. So uh, I've always gone for the esoteric stuff. Part of the appeal of the language, I think, for me was uh, I was raised in a modern Orthodox household, and so uh, I went to a yeshiva, to a parochial school, and the typical modern Orthodox uh, yeshiva it's all, all the, the religious stuff is uh, taught with Hebrew, uh, with modern Hebrew. And modern Hebrew is, forgive me, such a deathly dull language. It's <laughs> just so damn boring. It really is. Uh, it's understandable because it's a very, very young language. It's, it's basically, imagine if you took Latin out of the, out of the, you know, out of the, the closets where it's kept and then try to make a modern spoken language out of it until it got the juice and the flavor of a modern language again would take a very long time. Well, Hebrew's only been in common usage again for about a century, whereas Yiddish was used, was grew organically uh, out of how people lived for a thousand years. It's a thousand-year-old language. So Yiddish is so much more colorful and flavorful and interesting. And So I would hear... Yiddish at home and other places and learn Hebrew in school and immediately I that was I think a big part of the appeal of Yiddish like why well, do I don't want to learn this boring crap I want the the rich funny colorful language I want the you know, the cranky stuff well let's talk about uh, Yiddish theater historically I always think of something like the the theater scene in Italian in Godfather 2 for this kind of you know ethnic group specific theater you know, a kind of vaudeville because it's short scenes sometimes. There was Yiddish vaudeville, 
uh, and a, a music hall, Yiddish music hall, which is a, a variant of vaudeville, was massively popular around the turn of the century. But the legit Yiddish theater was really uh, there from the beginning. And uh, there is a play, Jacob Gordon, for example, who's a playwright that was uh, called the Yiddish Ibsen. There is a film of his, a movie version of one of his major plays that's in the box set. Uh, and he was writing in the 1880s, 1890s. All right. And uh, the, the bulk of Yiddish theater was, it was, it was a broad, broad range, but a very uh, a straightforward kind of respectable literary theater. There were always uh, uh, melodramas, mostly domestic melodramas, and we have some of those represented the set too, um, you know, uh, uh, weepies, things like that. Simple, naturalistic slice of life pieces, lots of stylized stuff, and we'll get to that when we talk about uh, the Dybbuk, which was a highly experimental uh, stylized play. It was basically expressionism on stage, and it was the most significant play in the history of Yiddish theater. That's right from the beginning. So it wasn't just like a, a kind of peasant immigrant culture. It really had high culture in it from an early point. Not only that, it attracted outside attention. All sorts of people uh, who didn't speak a word of Yiddish would go, would attend Yiddish theater. European royalty saw the Dybbuk. Bing Crosby <laughs> saw the Yiddish theater in New York. Uh, Paul Robeson saw Yiddish theater. Al Capone loved Molly Pecan. Uh, so, yeah, she, went, she once did a sort of a command performance before him. She, he uh, he was having some party and he wanted, uh, he, he sent somebody to fetch her or something, he wanted her to perform and you don't argue with Al Capone, especially when you're like, like three foot four and weigh 19 pounds. So, right. <laughs> theater because it was exactly the opposite of what you might guess it would be because it was so adventurous stylistically aesthetically so much of it was it had a huge impact uh, beyond way beyond uh, uh, just Jewish stuff so when did film enter this when did Yiddish cinema come about there there are several stages uh, to Yiddish cinema the early stage is the early silent era, which is, which is well, it's, it's still early silent film. It's pre-World War One. There was a spate of Yiddish movies. I think there were two realers, uh, mostly. They're all lost, unfortunately, but they're all dramas. Uh, there were at least a half a dozen of them made, maybe more, uh, that were made in Eastern Europe that were mostly uh, movie versions of the Jacob Gordon plays that I was mentioning before. Those are all gone, unfortunately. Uh, in the 20s, uh, there were a handful of Yiddish uh, uh, silent features Made now. I say, what defines a, a a Yiddish movie? Obviously, the language. But when I say it's a Yiddish movie, nonetheless, it's based on Yiddish material. It's got Yiddish uh, actors in it, and it's directed principally at a Yiddish-speaking audience. So there were a number of those in the twenties. But of course, without hearing the language, it's limited. So when talkies came in, there was a spate of Yiddish movie, Yiddish early talkies. Uh, of some of those exist. Basically, it seems that pretty much everything that was made in the early talkie era, with a couple of exceptions, was frankly junk, was just stuff that was grinded out. We know there's an audience out there that will pay to hear the language uh, uh, on this, to play to see, see a movie with Yiddish sound in it, with Yiddish talking in it, and that was the end of it. Uh, on the other hand, there are, there are a couple of features from that early talkie era that are very good, one or two. There's a wonderful movie called Uncle Moses, uh, which stars Maury Schwartz, although he did not direct that one that's a terrific uh, uh movie but um that's that's 32 within a couple of years around that, that that may be the tail end of when they made yiddish talkies in the early 30s there were there were one or two stragglers afterwards but it kind of stopped then then in the couple of years later it picks back up 36 to 40 are considered 
the golden era of Yiddish movies. That's the busiest period for Yiddish movies. It, it got bigger then. Uh, why it specifically picked up then, I think just a, a, a couple of people in New York and in Poland, by the way, Hollywood was never a place for making Yiddish movies. They never made a single Yiddish movie. Yiddish movies were made either in New York or in Poland, and one Yiddish talkie was made in the Soviet Union. Um, anyhow, as a couple of people started making them in 35, 36, and then it just took off. Uh, the first one in uh, America, the first significant one in America, is the movie of the Jewish King Lear, which is in the box set. And that's, to be blunt, a god-bloody-awful movie. But <laughs> um, it's, it's terrible, terrible. It's, what, what, that, that's, the, the play was the King Lear story adapted to a Jewish family setting. And it had been a huge hit. It was a big breakthrough play uh, when it opened in, I think, 1882. It was the star-making role for Jacob P. Adler, who is remembered today uh, mainly as Stella Adler's father and Luth Adler's father, but who was the great, the outstanding uh, star manager uh, of uh, that era of Yiddish theater. Major, major play. When the Federal Theater started in the mid-30s, they had a Yiddish theater project, and they supported uh, a one production of that play, which was... Not a particularly good production. It played in, seems in community centers, places like that, maybe senior citizens' homes in the outer boroughs of New York, and that's it. But there was a fellow named Joseph Seiden, who was, you might call him the Samuel Z. Arkoff of Yiddish movies. <laughs> okay. And who was just an utter fastbuck artist, not devoted, it, it, it couldn't care less about, about film, about art, about anything like that. But uh, he had produced some of the early uh, Yiddish talkies, and then he saw this, or was aware of this production of Jewish King Lear, and thought he could grind out in probably a couple of days a, a movie version of it. Thing is, the play itself was very dated by the time it was made. It's it's not a, a great play. It's historically important, but it's it dates very badly. Uh, the production that was lousy. And the director credited is the director of the stage production, Harry Tomaszewski, who was Boris Tomaszewski's brother, I believe. He is credited with directing the movie, but I don't believe he ever got credited with directing another movie. I'm not sure that he directed this movie. Right. It looks like nobody directed it. It <laughs> really does. And it's produced on a budget of nothing. And like I say, it's a lousy play, and the cast is lousy. At the same time, it's like, it's, as I say, it's historically, it's a milestone. And I do, but that was the first one that Sidon made in this period. And then the floodgates opened. It made money. And Sidon started grinding them out right and left. And we have a number of Sidon's movies in the box set. And they're great representations of the most cliche version of Yiddish theater, what people think Yiddish theater was. People who really don't know anything about Yiddish theater think it was all these domestic melodramas. Uh, the, 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 the mother, for some reason, loses her child on a bus or something like that. She winds up going blind and suffering, starving. She's begging on the street. Some nice person picks her up, decides to help her. They wind up getting her an, an eye operation. And who does it wind up? The eye surgeon is who fixes her eyesight, but the son who she had lost on the bus 30 years earlier or something like <laughs> that. <laughs> that's not a, a specific real one, but that, that's what those things were like. Anyhow, uh, that kind of stuff was popular in Yiddish theater. It wasn't, I would say, uh, uh, dominant or completely representative, but it was very popular. And uh, Sidon turned out movie versions of those things. So in the box set, we have, say, Motley Operator and Her Second Mother, etc., which are perfect examples of that stuff. And they're funny as hell 
if you, you know, approach them with the right spirit. There's a Yiddish word, forgive me, it's dreck. But <laughs> if you're in the mood for, for dreck, if you're in an MST3K kind of mood, you'll have a good time with those movies. Now let me ask, where did these these movies play, did they play anywhere besides New York? Did oh, sure. they, they're all in of, other major cities? All, uh, every major city, also, out, also in different countries around the world as well, as Yiddish theater did. I mean, there was Yiddish theater in every major and middling city in the country the the big yiddish theater stars from new used to tour out of new york and they would take a couple of people with them and then because the productions are always big this was not the days back then where plays had three characters in them or four right. characters <laughs> they were big whopping casts and they would pick up casts in detroit they would fill out their cast for the detroit production same thing happened in uh, in in south america people toured all the time to buenos aires and to other parts of south, central and south america uh, and they would have locals fill in, fill out the casts. Uh, they would bring the repertoire, they would bring themselves, and then the, all the supporting roles would be played by local Yiddish actors. So the same thing with Yiddish movies. They would play all of those places, everywhere. They would not play in Goats Tochas, Wyoming. Right. <laughs> where there was clearly zero audience. Because, these, the, because the movies, unlike the best Yiddish theater, the best Yiddish theater, as I said, would draw in an audience that wasn't just the obvious Yiddish audience. You would get all people who were come to see at the Yiddish theater for the theater of it. You never uh, got that with Yiddish movies, although sometimes, as you see with the number of the titles in the box set, there's some excellent cinema there. But uh, Yiddish movies really were conceived to play entirely to a Jewish audience, even when they tried to widen it a bit. So something like Tevye wouldn't play in New York with subtitles for English it actually would. It would. It would. Yeah. The, all of the prints. Tevye, it's interesting. The print that uh, was used for this restoration uh, was a clean 35 with no titles on them. But all of the other titles, uh, I, I believe, I could be raw off on one, uh, were from prints with titles on them, and they were released that way originally. And that's an interesting thing, too. On a couple of the titles in, the, in, in this box set, uh, you have both the versions with the new titles that I wrote, for all of them except for the Dybbuk, uh, and also you have the original release version with the original titles, and you can see what a different thing it was. If you look at, for example, uh, the Ulmer comedy, and that, that's a phrase you don't hear very often, uh, <laughs> yeah. American Matchmaker. O Ulmer made three comedies, I believe. This is the good one. If you look at the, the titles, the original titles for that, they're sort of denatured. A bit, a lot of the very Jewish stuff in that, that some of the humor comes from uh, is not translated. And it's as though they try to deracinate the right. movie a little bit. make it. And I, I guess they were thinking it would appeal to a wider audience that way. The other thing is there was a different philosophy with subtitling back then than there is now. And if you look at the original titles for any of these, they are like, if you look at, if you see an old 16 that has original titles for original American release titles for Grand Illusion, say, or uh, Bicycle for something like that, the titles tend to be very, very spare. Every tenth line of dialogue is translated. Right. That's It's awful, but it's, I think the philosophy was they should translate just enough for you to be able to follow the plot, which is, I don't understand why they did it, but that was, seems to have been the thing at that time, and the titles, the new titles, 
uh, for the, everything in the box set. They were absolutely complete, including things that were never titled at all like songs. Right. Songs or sometimes if you hear a, a piece of a liturgical something or other, they never translated those at all. They're, they're all done in the new film so that you get as, as much as possible an experience that's the same if you know the language than if you don't. Well, let's talk about songs for a second because they're very musical films. Mm -hmm. None of them is an outright musical, certainly not Tevya, but people are always singing. It reminds me a little bit of like Vidor's Hallelujah, mm -hmm. where he, he just wants us to hear on the soundtrack this, the music of this culture constantly. So I think that's very true, and the, uh, the music was very often worked into uh, 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 Yiddish plays. It was, it was almost expected, not 100% of the time. Um, when Gordon started, when Jacob Gordon started uh, uh, writing his plays, uh, it had been common up and, uh, prior to him for songs to be shoved in right and left. Uh, on, into all kinds of plays. It was the, because the, that very early audience was very much a, I'm talking 19th century audience. But Yiddish theater only started in the 1870s, modern, uh, real Yiddish theater. Uh, so that early audience was really a, a very much a lowest common denominator audience. And uh, the cliche was the, the shows would be, what is it, a, a, a fight, a jig, a, a song, a laugh, something like that. <laughs> So they would shove songs into everything. And Gordon insisted that there's only going to be a song in his play if it's absolutely germane, if this is a folk song that people are singing for some reason or something like that. And you see in the movie of the Dybbuk, for example, there are a couple of songs that are very brief and they're not musical performance moments, really. They are maybe even a very slight way, but they really are a part of the action. And uh, yes, it is true, Yiddish theater was always musical. There were there are tons and tons of straight plays with no music, but there was a heavy musical influence in Yiddish theater. This is the curious thing of a single culture of films, Yiddish film, is coming from multiple places in the world, New York mm -hmm. and Poland, I guess, primarily. Mm -hmm. um, do you see a distinction between the films being made in one place and the other? That's a great question. The answer is no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, not really. There were fewer done in Poland than in New York. Uh, the lighter weight uh, Yiddish movies that were made in Poland were a bit smarter than the lightweight Yiddish movies made in New York. There was no Polish Joseph Seiden. There was no you know bottom Yiddish bottom feeder making movies in Poland at that time. Um, but at the same time, there are films with style made in Poland. There are films with style made in America. Uh, there are films yeah, that take place in... Poland of the 1930s, there are films that take place in uh, America of the 1930s. There are films that take place that are historical movies, that are shtetl stories, made in Poland and in New York as well. And the culture is a common culture. Uh, there's, uh, it's, it's very much the same culture. It's important to be aware when uh, uh, you're looking at Yiddish film, to be aware of the connection between Yiddish film and Yiddish theater. Unlike any other national cinema that I know, um, there is such a direct connection between Yiddish theater and Yiddish film. Yiddish film grew directly out of Yiddish theater. Yiddish, the actors in Yiddish films, there's no such thing as a Yiddish film actor. Right. Uh, they're always Yiddish theater actors. They came from Yiddish theater. They were recruited from Yiddish theater. Uh, their experience, their background is in Yiddish theater, etc. David Opotoshu did a wonderful movie uh, with uh, Ulmer called The Light Ahead. And Opotoshu was a theater actor. And he talked in an interview about how Ulmer had to pull him in 
because, and if you see the film, uh, he's playing out like you right. might, like an actor might typically on stage because make sure, uh, Marlon Brando famously said, an actor loses best opportunities when he plays everything in profile. Because if you're talking to another <laughs> character on stage, that's the temptation to play in profile. But opening out is what you have to do for a stage audience. Well, Opatoshu is constantly opening out in the early scenes of The Light Ahead because he's not thinking at all about the fact that this is a camera. You don't have to do that. And he said Ulmer had his head, had a, pull him down, pull him down, don't play out, and taught him how to be a film actor. Um, so that was the background of, of the Yiddish film actors. And in Yiddish film, it's... It, you have, among the filmmakers, you have basically two categories of people. You have filmmakers whose idea, who, who thought was, get it in the can and, and throw it out there and uh, not dedicated to film at all. And then you have real filmmakers uh, like Ulmer and Max Nosek and I would argue Maury Schwartz and a couple of others. Well, yeah, let's go through. I mean, you've you've kind of given us the... The Joseph Seiden half of the uh, <laughs> of this box is, is yeah. you know, we've summed those up. So let's let's go with what you regard as kind of the big five on this set. Mm-hmm. Um, starting with the the Dibuk, which is directed by Michal Wajinski. Okay, you said it better than I. I, I don't uh, know if I got it right either. It's Polish, <laughs> though. His, it's, yeah. it's an assumed Polish name. You know, that wasn't his real name. Okay. His real name is Moshe Wax. <laughs> and yeah, he's a fascinating character. There's a documentary about him that came out a couple of years ago, uh, who was born Moshe Wax in some shtetl uh, uh, somewhere, I think in Galicia, which is part of Eastern Europe, and died a Polish count in Rome in the 60s. <laughs> Absolutely true. So the Divic. Number one, it's basically the Gone with the Wind of Yiddish movies. <laughs> it is, and I, and I say that because it is, well, you know, unfortunately we... I, I think I'd like it better if they got Butterfly McQueen in there somehow. But other than that, um, because, number one, the Dybbuk was the major literary property uh, in the Yiddish theater canon. When the Dybbuk opened in 1920, uh, the it was such a massive, massive hit. Uh, uh, ran for, I believe, a couple of years in its original production by a company called the Vilna Troupe, which was this legendary Yiddish art theater company. And... Uh, there is there. There's a story there. The um, in in Warsaw where the uh, uh, the cable car, the, the the trolley car, would go by. It was going by the, when it, when they would stop at the street corner where the theater was, where it was playing the Dybbuk. He, the 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 announcer, the 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 conductor, stopped announcing the street name. He would just yell Dybbuk, <laughs> and everybody. Would get, that's how big a hit that show was originally. Now. The original production by the Vilna Troupe is highly, highly stylized. It was, as I said, expressionism on stage. If you look at stills from it, the makeup style is black and white. Black, 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 white, white, white on the face. Very much uh, uh, like something. I, well, it's, it's uh, like uh, Caligari or even more so, what is it, From Midnight to Dawn? Right. That, yeah, which that's just, it's such a great example of, because that's more of a stagey movie than Caligari. You really get a sense of, of, expression, of expressionist stage. With broad, slow gestures by the actors, very deliberate pace, etc. When they make the movie now, uh, this is 17 years later, Number one, it's a huge production. Uh, uh, they get it has a lot of money in it, and it's by by Polish film standards, certainly by Yiddish film standards. They get Michal Wojcicki, who is one of the top directors in Poland, 
mainly, I think, because he was very prolific and because he, he was slick and capable, not because he was an incredible stylist, but uh, he, was, he was highly professional and highly successful. The actors who were in the Dybbuk had done productions of it all over the place. All of the productions that followed the Vilna production would have been imitations of the Vilna production. This wasn't an era where a new director would come in and do it here and say, I have a whole different slant, let's do it this way. Sometimes the first production makes its mark on something and it stays that way, and we still have that today. I mean, look at Pippin the Musical, for example. Every production is done with the same kind of circus clown crap that Jerome Robbins, or, or, or not, uh, not Robbins, I forget who directed it, but that, that was put in the original production. It's never gotten away from that. Every production of Cabaret still has the MC played as was, as was uh, conceived for Joel Grey right. rather than as like the MC in, in, uh, in Blue Angel or something. 17 years later, they make the movie. Clearly, Wierzynski decides that because it's a movie, he's, not, he's going to keep it naturalistic looking. Uh, you know, it's, it's well shot, uh, it's nice, clean photography, it's not, until you get into the spooky stuff at the midpoint of the movie, it's, it's fairly bright, um, and then, the, uh, but there's no weird makeup on the actors' faces, none of that, but the acting, at the same time, even though they look normal, and the environment looks normal, the acting is very deliberate. Yes. That very heavy, slow pace all those very deliberate gestures. Now, you've seen other Yiddish movies. You know that's not typical. Tevye, the acting in Tevye is nothing like that. But uh, the, in the in the Dybbuk, clearly what they're doing is recreating, and I think they felt they had to because there was an expectation because everybody's seen the damn play that the movie had to feel like the play. So there's that with the movie. Yeah, it's it's deliberate and a bit slow to get into at first. Once the spooky stuff starts, it, it gets quite a bit better. Um, reminded me a little of uh, like Carl Dreyer's Vampire mm-hmm. at times, which I found it has a it has a family relationship to. The Dybbuk came out of kind of anthropological research or something sort of like Alan Lomax collecting blues songs or something. Yes, it did. In, in the Jewish community, which was underwritten by the Gunsbergs. And, of course, one of the Gunsbergs banking family, uh, Nicholas de Gunsberg, is the star of Vampire and paid for it. So, you know, Wow! Apparently, apparently that sort of goth... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had no idea. Yeah, it runs in the family, I guess. So, <laughs> a taste for that. So he, so he paid for Ansky's... Ansky was the sociologist who, who wrote the play. And, and as you said, it was based on... He went to the most remote... Shtetlach and places that wouldn't be a sh- places that were smaller than a shtetl, like a suburb of a village, and would fi- and found uh, the uh, people tell him tell him had people telling him stories about uh, folkways, superstitions, r- obscure rituals, etc. And all of that was was uh, what was worked into the play. So as you said, and that's the other thing that I found really interesting in it is, you know, if you think of like. American or or even British tales of the supernatural, they all sort of work off a potted Catholicism about how the devil and the undead and so on work. You know, uh, Peter Cushing is working under basically Vatican rules in getting (laughs) rid of these guys. And this is something different. You know, the, the guy creates the Dybbuk by calling on Satan, but he's not such a bad guy. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, he gets the girl at the end in a, sense. In, in a certain way. Yeah. 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 It's uh, th- that's also a very interesting uh, perspective that would never have occurred to me. Now, look, the the Jewish attitude towards the devil is the same as every Christian attitude towards the devil, but. Uh, uh, it's interesting that he who is sympathetic makes that argument, saying God made the devil, and everything made by God is holy. Therefore, even the devil is holy. Right. Yeah. You know, which is which is a kind of a sophistic, deep theological yeah. uh, argument. What Hanan, the 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 lead character, is indulging in is uh, Kabbalah, and Kabbalah is traditionally something that is not studied at all. In Orthodox Judaism, in mainstream Orthodox Judaism, it's not touched. The idea—it's the—it's the deep mysticism uh, stuff that he's into, and uh, uh, what's taught in every yeshiva, in every—and I mean Hasidic yeshiva, the real deal with the beards, you know, three feet long—is that you you have to know everything else, the uh, the Torah, uh, uh, the 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 Talmud, the commentaries, the prophets, this that, and it's an, an unbelievable huge. Uh, canon of material. You have to know all, all, all that stuff backwards, forwards, and sideways 14 times before you go anywhere near Kabbalah. So it is esoteric stuff. It's not, uh, this is not by any stretch of the imagination mainstream Judaism. All right, well, now let's move to Tevye, which is quite different. Um, and, you know, you can just see, I mean, read references to Maurice Schwartz being, you know, the, the Yiddish Olivier and things like that. And, I mean, he's a wonderful wonderful performer very nimble you know he he can have a whole conversation with himself answering another person um and very sweet and moving movie and and i know you have a certain antipathy to fiddler on the roof and i would say the big difference is fiddler on the roof is for an american audience it's a it's a myth of us leaving there and coming here and this is just a movie that's there it's set in that place and that's all it is that's exactly right i couldn't put it better the the defining difference is between fiddler and more schwartz's tevya which is shalom aleichem's tevya you know which is the tevya of the original stories is that it respects their the reality of there in a way that fiddler doesn't uh, uh fiddler makes enormous changes i mean for one thing in the in 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 shalom aleichem's tevya and in Moritz schwartz's tevya tevya does not live in ishtetl he lives in uh, uh, uh some corner way away from everything he has no jewish neighbors all those cute funny chorus characters in fiddler on the roof are not there in the shalom aleichem stories all those little, weren't we cute and funny back then none of that stuff goes back to the original the original has much more substance um also, uh, a big difference is the, the 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 stance on intermarriage. The thing is, Fiddler, and I, this is I, perhaps a, too much of a tangent for a film podcast, but Fiddler is is uh, written by very Americanized, assimilated, intermarried Jews. Well and good. Thing is, when they went and adapted Shalom Aleichem, they had to go and adapt Shalom Aleichem in such a way as to justify their lives. Right. Rather than respecting, because what is what you see in the movie and what you don't see in Fiddler, is that you couldn't intermarriage in Europe was not intermarriage here, here and in Fiddler, it's basically two nice kids from Scarsdale, uh, who you know <laughs> who ought, who ought to get married and is just nasty old bigot pop who just doesn't get it, and that's what it's like in Fiddler. The reality in Eastern Europe is there's no civil marriage in Russia, in the Russian Empire. It's illegal. There's no such thing. You don't go to a justice of the peace. 
you you uh, you have to get married by a religious figure, by a priest or a rabbi. However, a Russian Orthodox uh, uh, person cannot, by law, convert to Judaism. The, so if a, if a Russian Orthodox person and a Jew are to intermarry, the Jew is required by law to convert to Russian Orthodoxy, which is the religion that has been oppressing them for centuries. And uh, on top of that, the person, if it's a, a woman, will have to go live with the priest for a while, and you see this in the movie, and cut herself off from her family uh, for, for a period of time uh, until she marries, uh, uh, the, until she finishes her conversion and she marries. This... And if you, you realize the extent of the hostility that was there in Eastern Europe, this is the land of pogroms. You read one description of a pogrom one time, and it changes your perspective completely on what a different world that is than ours. We think everything is America of 2020, and it right. isn't. The closest you can come to, to that place is maybe the Jim Crow South for black Americans. And it's, it's, if anything, it was in some ways worse. If you see pictures and descriptions of literally the the pillaging, the looting, the raping, the it, it, these unbelievable horrors that would happen every so often, every twenty years, ten years, thirty years. Uh, this was the the world that they lived in, and for somebody to convert to the other side was far, 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 far more uh, more significant than we're led to believe in Fiddler on the Roof, and that's why I think. It's so important uh, to, to see, if you're interested in, in understanding something of the history, to see Schwartz's Tevye rather than uh, uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, also, it's, it's a wonderful movie, and I think Schwartz is a first-rate filmmaker. He, this is the first talkie he directed. Uh, there are one or two teeny tiny missteps, I think, but overall, I think it's a superb piece of filmmaking. It's, a lot of it reminds me of John Ford. Yes, yeah. and, and the use of landscape is really nice. And I, you know, I was completely convinced that it was the Ukraine and not upstate New York or wherever it was that they were shooting. Long it, Island, so. yeah. Long Island. Okay, <clears throat> even more so. Yeah, um, yeah. No, and and also, I mean, it's 1939, and Tevye is talking about, oh, sure, they're, they're our friends right now, but you get a pogrom started and they're, you know, you'll see how friendly they are then. Yeah. I mean, that's, those are very pregnant words in 1939. Very much so. Now, he'd, it, those words had been written by Shalom Aleichem decades earlier, but in 19, and they always had that meaning. But as you say, at that particular historical moment, and when we get to... Um, Overture to Glory, you have the same thing in the other direction. And we'll, we'll talk about that. All right, well, let's talk about that, Overture to Glory. That, to me, is what was, to me, the real find. Um, it's it's just it's a title that I came to late. I had not seen it before I started to work on these films. I'd seen all the others. And it's a beautiful movie. It's beautifully directed. Uh, uh, Max Nosek is is one of those uh, remember Andrew Saris's phrase subject for further research right <laughs> he's really a subject for further because he's done some terrific stuff and he is completely unknown he also uh, um, if I were to describe I'd say he's he's basically the destitute man's Edgar G Ulmer yeah <laughs> His Dillinger with Lawrence Tierney that's D the only other thing I know of yeah. uh, now have you ever seen Le Roi de Champs Elysees now, oh, no, I haven't. I didn't realize he did that. He did that. That's Buster Keaton. It is far and away Buster Keaton's best talkie feature. 
It is a lovely movie, very funny. There is, it is, and you, you look at this movie and it's 1934 and it's after five years of MGM hell for Keaton. You watch those awful MGM movies and it's such torture. And then he goes over to France and he makes this terrific little movie. Yeah, it's not the, the, the general or the cameraman, but it's a fantastically entertaining movie. And it's beautifully directed, and that's Max Nosek. Nosek made a bunch of uh, a number of comedies in Holland. He had started; he'd made comedies in Germany. He's he's an Eastern European Jew, born in uh, an area that was not too far from the German border. I would guess, uh, though bio- biographical information is sort of limited, I would guess Yiddish was probably his first language. Um, he went to Germany, made films in the in the early talk era when the Nazis uh, came in. He left Germany. He wound up making a bunch of movies in Holland. Uh, he'd made movies in Spain. He did the Keaton movie in France. He came here. Uh, it seemed to you know career seemed to be going okay in Europe. He came he, although nothing major major. He came here in '39 or something, and Overture to Glory is his American debut, and he really. Seems pulls out the stops for it. it. Without being self-indulgent, without being flashy, you can really, really see this is a genuine filmmaker. Uh, this is a guy who knows how to compose a shot. He knows how to stage for camera. He knows there's the, he uses motifs. There's a mirror motif in it that if you catch it, you catch it. If you don't, you don't. But it's it's beautifully subtly used in the movie. It's the performances are terrific. He knows how to shoot on a, a fairly limited budget. I mean, it, they say it cost, uh, uh, at the time they were saying that the movie cost $20,000, which is hard to believe, uh, <laughs> because even Tevye cost fifty, And it's a very well-produced movie with period costumes and sets, etc. Uh, it was also the only Yiddish talking made in a major studio. It was shot in Astoria. Uh, some of the other, uh, Seiden had his own little studio, and Schwartz did the interiors for Tevye in the Biograph Studios in the Bronx, but the only big studio studio that was that ever had a Yiddish movie in it at all was the studio scenes for uh, Overture to Glory. Um, it's 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 also it's it's a I don't I don't want to give away too much, but it's a story that it's a true story, uh, the the roots of it, the kernel of it, that is the inspiration, the same story for the jazz singer. And ah. it, yeah, and it's about a cantor in the early 19th century Poland who uh, uh, crosses over to singing uh, opera in Polish. It basically leaves his world, leaves his background, while at the same time keeping so much of it inside him. Uh, and it's got a gorgeous performance by Moshe Oysha in the lead. Moshe Oysha is... Uh, uh, people in the Jewish world who are a little bit older know him, know his name as a legendary cantor, but... He's actually a wonderful actor and winds up he had been an actor before he became a cantor, which is kind of why he was such a good cantor, because he knew how to act, how to put meaning into the words. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, true. Um, anyhow, it's, 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 beautifully, it's beautifully stylish without, ex- be, without being excessively so. It's, uh, it's a real find. The print on it, uh, thanks, this, the restorations in the box set are the best I've ever seen on any of these titles. Uh, by far for some of them. Uh, the, the, the print for Overture to Glory, it seems like there's no original material around, and it is dupy. I've never seen anything but a dupy print. This is the best I've ever seen that dupy material looking, but unfortunately it's a bit dupy, so a bit high contrast, so expect that. Uh, but in any case, it's, it's a wonderful movie. And Nasek, going back to him, 
his career paralleled Ulmer's also in so many ways. He did noirs. He did several. Uh, uh, he did five movies with Lawrence Tierney. God help him. Who was, was a mental case. Um, he. he we, I saw a very good one uh, last night. The Hoodlum, a nasty, tough little noir from '51. That's that's an awfully good, lean little piece. A uh, very stylish noir in the '40s for RKO called The Brighton Strangler. That seemed to have done all right. Didn't get him any contract with RKO. He makes two, a couple of independent movies. The original Black Beauty, huge hit, does nothing for him. Uh, there was another one from that period that he made that was very successful. Does a lot of business, does nothing for him. Dillinger is a in, little independent movie produced by the King Brothers, released by Monogram, becomes the biggest whopping hit of its, uh, of, of its moment, does nothing for him. Never had any luck. Uh, goes back to Germany in the 50s. His, his career goes on there. Some of the things he made there look interesting. They never got over here. They're impossible to find, uh, practically impossible. But um, he, he had uh, plenty of chances. He always delivered, and he never and he had no luck. He's, he's very comparable to Ulmer. Well, now, the guy who has a completely different career path is Alexander Ford, uh, best known after the war for a big Polish hit called Knights of the Teutonic Cross. His film is a kind of documentary about a Polish TV sanitarium for kids called Mir Kuman An. It's a really charming humanist film, though, of course, it has a tragic postscript. You know, he's making this in, what, 36, 37, and in the early 40s, the Nazis invade and send all the inhabitants to Treblinka to be killed. Still, it is this very sweet and very poignant film. Isn't it? A, it's, it's just a little beauty, and it's, a, it's such a young movie. It's one of the, the things about the, 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 the whole concept, the whole place that's so appealing, is that it's this, the sanatorium is run democratically by the kids themselves. And it's got this whole spirit of, beautiful, positive spirit of youth about it. And at the same time, of course, as you say, you cannot help but keep the future of these kids and this place in your mind while you watch it. So, in the, so it's so sweet and touching and positive, and at the same time, it's heartbreaking. It's an absolutely beautiful movie. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Just loved it. So, yeah, that uh, kind of brings us to the conclusion of Yiddish cinema as a genre, although the, one of the films uh, is actually from 1949. But I'm Well, assuming... we, haven't, we also haven't talked about the Ulmer film. Oh, let's talk about the Ulmer film. Yeah, American Matchmaker is... Uh, an interesting movie. It's fun. As uh, I mentioned earlier, Edgar Ulmer, who I've been a fan of since I was a teenager, um, is it's a is a wonderful filmmaker. Who he and comedy, it just ain't two great tastes that taste great together. <laughs> if you, you know, if you look at uh, something like uh, uh, Saint Benny the Dip or uh, My Son the Hero, no, 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 stick stick to the dark stuff. Anyhow, so this this is a, a comedy directed by Ulmer, not only directed by Ulmer but produced by Ulmer and shot by Ulmer, and it's it's a lot of fun and it's very also very very different in that this is a movie and I thank Eve Sicular who did the commentary track on that, uh, who, who was the first person that really started talking about this and she it's so obvious and so true. It's a gay movie. <laughs> it's a gay Yiddish movie for crying out loud. Um, it's uh, the, the the lead character, Leo, uh, um, uh, Leo Fuchs, 
is uh, a bachelor uh, who is likes to dress well and is, is excessively devoted to his mother and is, enga- is engaged eight times and every one of them falls apart for some reason. He just doesn't seem to be able to marry the girl. Uh, I don't know why that could be. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, and uh, there are all sorts of other inside references uh, with, within the movie, little, little in-joke things suggesting... Again, that he's gay. Winds up the story, and you, the uh, Eve, uh, Eve on the commentary track will go into all this stuff at length. She did the research on this, but the story for the movie was written by Ulmer's, I believe, wife's uncle, uh, who was an operetta writer who was gay himself, and uh, it was also co-written with Shirley Ulmer co-wrote the story. I forget who did the dialogue because Shirley didn't know Yiddish. Um, but that's it. It's also got this wonderful cast of character people, of Yiddish theater, comic character actors, who there's a whole bunch of little bits in it where somebody comes out and does a little scene that has nothing to do with the story. It's almost like one of those Abbott and Costello scenes where suddenly they have to deliver straw hats to the Susquehanna Hat Company out of nowhere that has to do with their... <laughs> I mean, it's almost as blatant as that. Um and they they'll basically do their little comic turn, their 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 little character bit, and they're gone, and you never see them again for the rest of the movie because they have nothing to do with the plot. It's just a chance for somebody to come out and do a funny, colorful character thing. And there's a number of the, uh, there's a bunch of those in it. It's it's a neat little movie with wonderful performances. It's also it's very very American. It takes place in a very American milieu, um, and the backstory on it, interestingly, is. Uh, that uh, Ulmer had, he did, he did four Yiddish movies. The first two were produced by independent Yiddish film producers. The third one, The Light Ahead, he produced himself. That one, like the first two, was based on a strong, dramatic literary piece. And he produced himself, and it did not make money. And so he produced, when he produced American Matchmaker himself, he decided to, to go the safer route and produce a light comedy. And so that's how the movie came about. Uh, he never did never did it again because it's very similar to what happened with Overture to Glory. Uh, both of them came out in 1940. And Yiddish movies depended on the European market also to make money. They not only were released in, in, in North and South America, but they were released all over Europe. And of course, once the war started, that door closed. So Yiddish movie making in America ended except for a footnote in 1949-50 from Joseph Seiden. We have one of those titles in the box set, too. And then some more recent things. There have been a couple of independent features, a couple of very, very good ones, actually, that have been made in Yiddish. But the mainstream Yiddish cinema story in America uh, ends there. I would say one quick story. Um, when I was, I, So I got interested in Yiddish when I was a teenager, and somebody who was a member of the Joseph Seiden family at that time, this is the late 70s, had, they had all the prints. There was a company in Brooklyn called Miriam Lillian Films, and they would run them at basically uh, synagogues, senior citizen centers, places like that. I remember going, taking, coming from Far Rockaway, where I grew up, and taking uh, three subways and a bus or something on a Saturday night once to go to some godforsaken corner of Brooklyn to see the Cantor's Son, which was being run by the, this guy from that uh, from that company. And I think I was the only person in the audience who was able to walk without help. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so this is a little mini genre that flourished for a moment and then really has gone away. It's not like there's still a country where they're going to start making these movies again. I mean, they make movies in Israel, but they're not the same thing. So um, what did we learn? What, 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 does, what does Yiddish cinema have for us today? The real treasure that is in the box set is it, it's it comes it made, it's made up of several parts one it is the most vivid way we have of connecting with life as it was lived through the Sidon movies particularly we, we learn a lot about Jewish life in America in the 19 in the 1930s and 40s uh, we learn about the, the what the language sounded like what the people's attitudes were what the younger generation, uh, how they carried themselves, how they spoke, how they lived, uh, even silly as those movies are, they, they are very much time capsules. And in the the better ones, in Tevya and Overture to Glory and the Divic, etc., uh, we have a, a wonderful way of seeing, in the best possible way, the most vivid and authentic way, the great achievements of Yiddish literature and drama. And transplanted in those T uh, titles into really first-rate films, real movies, not just film theater. The Jewish Soul, 10 Classics of Yiddish Cinema, comes out on November 24th from Kino Lorber. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. There are a few acting dynasties that go back to early silent days. But in terms of producers and studio heads, you're lucky to have a Richard Zanuck or a David Ladd, second-generation names from the sound era. Ned Thanhauser spent his life in a different booming West Coast industry, high-tech. Few he worked with likely knew that his last name once belonged on a movie studio, since the Thanhauser company ceased production in 1917. But in recent years, he's devoted himself to finding and sharing the legacy of one of America's pioneering movie studios that his grandfather happened to found. His latest collection of rediscovered Thanhauser one-reelers is available now on DVD and at Vimeo. I spoke with him from his home in Portland, Oregon, and began by asking him, did he know when he was growing up that there was a movie studio in the family background? My father told me and my sisters that uh, our grandfather, Edwin and Gertrude, my grandmother, were involved in the silent film industry, but none of their works from the studio survived, that he had burned them all. And uh, so my sisters and I, we kind of took it at face value that uh, Edwin basically was given a bill for the storage of the nitrate prints at the local bank in New Rochelle and said, 
Bah, they're worthless. Burn them all. <laughs> and they did, but they burned the negatives. And, of course, every negative made, you know, 30 or 40 prints that went into distribution around the country and around the world. It wasn't until after my father passed away in 1986 that I actually saw a television show on uh, public broadcasting from UCLA, and they had a Thanhauser film and the Thanhauser logo it was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I said, oh my gosh, uh, something exists. So I got on, uh, this is before the internet or VHS, right? So um, I made a lot of phone calls and I ended up at um, Blackhawk Films in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. And they had a couple of Thanhauser films on 16 millimeter film. So I think for $87.50, I ordered Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and King Rene's Daughter. And I uh, was so excited to get these films after, you know, decades of being told that nothing existed. I rented a movie theater here in Portland, Oregon. And my sisters flew in, one from California and one from New Hampshire. And we had a grand party. I had a hundred of my friends show up and I fed them all and we showed the films with live accompaniment. This was 1987. And that started my journey to say, gee, I wonder if there's more. And by golly, there's a lot more. Well, let's go back into the history of this. So your grandfather, Edwin Thanhauser, was like a stock company actor, basically, going around playing all over the country. And then he saw that the movies were coming along and thought, I should get into this. So tell me about that. Yeah, well, he actually started acting on the stage with a uh, an actor who had an acting company named um, Alessandro Salvini in the 1880s. And um, he travels with Salvini for several years, you know, as a whistle-stop-a-night kind of lifestyle. Salvini died unexpectedly halfway through this tour, and Edwin wanted to be on the stage and thought Broadway would be a great thing, so... He went to New York and tried to get a job with um, acting companies on Broadway and was never successful uh, getting a job. But the Schubert brothers uh, said, you're not a great actor, but um, we like your business acumen because Edwin had been very successful as a young man in the business world as well as acting. And uh, so they said, how would you like to go run and manage our theater in Milwaukee, Wisconsin? So Edwin said, okay, that's a foot in the door. And so he managed the uh, Academy Theater in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, starting in the 1880s, and spent um, about 10 years there, during which time uh, a young ingenue, um, Gertrude Homan, came out during the summer stock time, and he fell in love with her in 1889, and they got married in 1900, after his uh, numerous attempts at romancing her. She was quite the junior for him, uh, but... 15 years younger than him in age. But they got married. Edwin managed the, the Academy Theater in Milwaukee until about 1909. And he said he wanted to go to a bigger venue, and he thought Chicago was great, and he moved himself and his family uh, to Chicago, where they uh, rented the Bush Temple Theater. They managed the Bush Temple Theater for about six months, but they weren't making any money. It wasn't being very successful. They were outside the, the main loop of the city. Plus, there was this new phenomenon that was coming in, taking all of their box office receipts, which was the flickers or Nickelodeons were taking away 
customer nickels and revenue. And so um, he went, uh, Edwin went to New York to investigate this motion picture business and decided in, uh, in 1909 that they were going to get into the motion picture business. His alternative was to get into the aircraft manufacturing huh. business. So he had to pick between aircraft and uh, motion pictures. We could be flying Thanhauser 747s, Who but knows? Yeah. that never happened. <laughs> so he went to, went to New York and uh, established uh, the studio in New Rochelle, which has its own story about how he did that. He took a train to New Rochelle looking for a place to live. And an enterprising young real estate salesman met him at the train station and uh, to show him around a, for a house to live in or housing and said, what business are you in? He says, I'm in the motion picture business. He says, well, what do you need? I need a big open space. And he said, well, there's this roller skating rink that's closed up that's got lots of space and maybe that would be a good thing. So he went and looked at the roller skating rink in, uh, in New Rochelle and said, wow, this is perfect. He's 45 minutes from Broadway, <laughs> uh, as made famous by George M. Cohan. Right. And um, so he uh, uh, purchased the factory. Uh, the rest is history. So did he ever appear in his films, or was that behind him by that point? It was pretty much behind him. He has a, um, a bit part in a couple of films. We have one or two still images, no moving images, of him as an usher in front of a movie theater. I guess he stood as an extra. And uh, he was a, a jury member in another film. We have a picture of that. But in terms of acting, uh, he never acted. Uh, Gertrude acted in one film, um, St. Elmo. And um, she saw herself on the screen after being on the stage as a young lady and said, my acting days are over. She'd had two children and yeah. was in her 30s and said, nope, that's, that's enough. So she stayed behind the scenes as a creative force for the Thanhauser films. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I noticed on the site you referred to him as uh, the only actor to start a movie studio, um, which, of course, there were actors who had production companies, but they were for their own benefit, like Hobart yeah. Bosworth made Hobart Bosworth movies. Right. Right. Well, Edwin had a whole bookshelf full of, you know, screen-ready plays from his time producing live theater. And... Um, you know, they were very much uh, fans of classic literature and knew many of the tales and loved to bring those to the stage. We have, you know, advertising flyers from back at the, when they were running the Academy Theater of some of their production titles and everything. They were classic, classic tales. And um, you know, like David Copperfield and right. Nicholas Nickleby and stuff like that. And those ended up on the screen. But of course, they knew they had to, to meet the, the demand, which was huge when movies came out on the Nickelodeon, they had this huge demand for content. You know, the whole industry was exploding. It was like a Starbucks on every corner. There were Nickelodeons. <laughs> and um, so he, with his brother-in-law, who was one of the three founders of the studio, it was Edwin and Gertrude and brother-in-law Lloyd Lonergan, who was working at the New York World Herald as a newspaper writer, by day and at night, he'd write scenarios for the Thanhauser studio. Uh, you know, a lot of newspaper men went into this business. Sure. Because they knew how to write and tell stories. And so uh, they would turn out, uh, in the beginning, they were doing one a week, and then they went to two a week. And at the height of their production, they were doing three 
films a week. They had three production organizations going on uh, in the 1912 time frame. These are all basically one reel films. I noticed like even David Copperfield, it's there's about 40 minutes of a film, but it's still like three one reel chapters right. of David Copperfield. Yeah, Edwin believed in what he called natural length films, which is, you know, rather than try to fit it into one reel, he liked the idea of letting it play out. He did uh, Romeo and Juliet in two reels. It's like David Copperfield was done in three wheels, and they were released on subsequent weeks because the distribution system at the time, in the early days of silent films, um, had no mechanism to take more than one reel per production company. And it wasn't until later when the, the distribution channels could take multi-reel films. So they would release... In fact, some of the advertising for, like, David Copperfield says, you know, just save all these reels and then show them all at the same time. <laughs> so he was trying to promote, because, you know, it's a con there's continuity between the three reels, even though they had separate separate themes. So why why couldn't you just send three reels from one company? I, I don't know the details on that, other than maybe they didn't have the shipping containers or the... Uh, the the contracts wouldn't allow them to take more than one reel per production company. I don't know the actual details, but what I've what I've heard about from some of my scholar friends is that the the distribution setup in those days was one reel per company, and it wasn't until 1913 or so when multi-reel films came out, and that led into what we call features today. And that was when you know the picture palaces came out in the 1913-14 time frame, and you'd get these one-hour features that were right. what audiences were clamoring for. Did Dan Houser go into more like conventional feature filmmaking after that? Well, they tried to. Um, you know, there was a couple of things that happened. So a little bit of the, the history is kind of a three-part story. Between 1910 and 1912, uh, Dan Houser was run by Edwin and Gertrude and Lloyd Lonergan. And in 1912... Um, Charles Height from the Mutual Film Corporation in Chicago approached Thanhauser and said, we'd like to buy you guys because, you know, we're a distributor and we need more content. We want to own the content. So we'd like to make you an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> and uh, after a couple of go-rounds, they did. And so in April of 1912, uh, Edwin sold out his shares and Gertrude's shares. Lonergan stayed on. Edwin and Gertrude, at the end of 1912, left for a tour of Europe, where they spent a couple of years over in Europe. And so from 1912, the end of 1912, till August of 1914, Charles Height was running the company. And Height brought in a lot of very innovative ideas and increased production. This is where we get to three reels a week. He created some sub-brands, like uh, the Princess brand as a Thanhauser sub-brand. And then uh, in August of 1914, a couple of very significant things happened. Number one, uh, Charles Height was driving back from New York in his new Roadster. He's in his late 30s, ran off the road, was thrown from the car, and died the subsequent morning. The other thing that happened, Edwin and Gertrude and family were over in Europe, and World War I broke out with the assassination of the Archduke. And so Edwin and uh, a bunch of notables got on a refugee ship out of Genoa and uh, came back to New York, and they actually landed in New York the same week that Height was killed. 
the board of directors, the board of directors of Mutual, basically was trying to save the Thanhauser company because it was very successful. And uh, the, the company had been taken over by uh, management by a bunch of investors who invested in the company and uh, run by committee. It was not very successful and there was chaos and people didn't like the films that were being put in. By 1915, they were in deep trouble with the Thanhauser studio, so they contacted Edwin and Gertrude and said, would you come back, please, (laughs) and manage your namesake? And so in February of 1915, Edwin and Gertrude returned to their desks at the studio and resumed management of the company under a three-year contract. And uh, Edwin was paid $75,000 a year under that contract, which coincidentally was the same salary as the president of the United States at the time. (laughs) They ran the studio from 1915 through the end of 1917, and the industry at that time was certainly shifting over to feature films. Uh, And they made, I think last time I checked, it was 23 uh, feature films. Mutual was demanding uh, for their distribution channel the production of feature films you know, four or five or six reels. And so Thanhauser made some, and they weren't, I think, you know, what you might call the best. I mean, I've seen a lot of comments on, like, The Woman in White was one of the films that people have been looking at that's online that they really like. And I think The World and the Woman is another one uh, that survives. So some of these feature films were were, were notable. You know, that they, they had some success, but I would say it wasn't great. Uh, they had a lot of talent that had left the company, and they were hiring lots of people on and off to do directing and story writing roles uh, for feature films and production. But in 1917, Florence Labadee was involved in a car accident that she was driving with her boyfriend. And she uh, she shattered her pelvis, apparently. Six weeks later, died from blood poisoning, septicemia. Right. And so that was the end of Florence, and that was kind of the last straw, I think, for the Thanhauser company. Uh, Edwin's contract was up after three years. You know, he had been successful. He had a lot of money because they'd paid him a lot. The industry was moving from the East Coast to the West, and he said, I don't want to move. I like it here on Long Island in this big mansion he'd built. And uh, so he shuttered the company. Besides Florence Labadee, were there any famous, you know, any any future talent that we might know who came out of it? I mean, I know there's the the Thanhauser twins. Yeah, they went on to be in the Ziegfeld Follies. Uh, I made a presentation on that at uh, Women in the Silent Film uh, conference over in Amsterdam. That presentation's on the Thanhauser site, by the way. Right. But I think the biggest uh, notable that came out of the Thanhauser company was uh, James Cruz who was with Thanhauser through 1915. He was married to uh, Marguerite Snow. When Edwin came back in 1915, Cruz thought that he was a big deal and asked Edwin for higher billing and more money. And Edwin said, not on your life, (laughs) and uh, fired him. And so in 1915, uh, Cruz and Marguerite moved to uh, Los Angeles, where he uh, became a film director and uh, directed the the first full-scale Western called The Covered Wagon. You know, I watched a few of the films last night, and and I'd seen a few others before I saw, uh, what is it, uh, Tommy and Toodle, what, what was that one called? 
Toodles, Tom, and Trouble. Toodles, Tom, and Trouble, the rather savage animal comedy, which was shown as part of the <laughs> Portnone Festival here uh, online recently. Right. And who knows? I've probably seen others along the way. What do you think? I mean, is there kind of a, a house style or anything like that? I, I felt like there were certain pretty common ways they had of approaching stories. Well, I think one of the common tropes, I think, is that uh, I think most of the films that Thanhauser produced had a happy ending. <laughs> and I think Toodles, Tom, and Trouble is a good example of that, other than uh, the dog doesn't quite make it. Yeah. <laughs> the dog is blown to bits. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the, the baby and the parents are reunited and everybody's happy at the end. Um, but I think that, you know, the, there's lots of lots of these stories that have you know, some crisis, and then there's a good resolution. There's a number of films like that. Um, another another one of my favorites along that line is called The Farmer's Daughters. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's online. Farmer's Daughters is basically about a, a father who has two daughters, and he goes to town looking for some suitors. And um, the daughters basically um, spook them into doing work uh, on the farm. They're out on a farm. And and but that they end up with a romance at the end. It's a happy ending. But you know, th- I think that's that's kind of typical of a lot of the short one reelers that uh, Lloyd Lonergan was responsible for writing. Happy endings. Um, you know, but there are some that are uh, more philosophical. There's another one of my very favorite films, which is called um, The Vagabonds. The Vagabonds is basically about a a, a man who has gone to drink, and he uh, is wandering the countryside with his dog as vagabonds and he gets befriended by somebody in an inn a man in an inn who asks him to tell a story and he tells the story through a bunch of flashbacks about how he was a young man and very successful was engaged to be married but uh, the drink got to him so that's one that doesn't have a happy ending but um, I really like the story and the cinematography in that one a lot yeah, I mean, there's adaptations of Ibsen, which, um, I mean, they're they're sort of a bit tamed in terms of resolving in a more, uh, you know, at least with with less uh, yeah. drama than than Ibsen had. But but still, I mean, they were they were taking on serious uh, theatrical subjects, and to me, I, I kind of felt like there was a certain theatricality to the way I, I assume it's Lonergan shot a lot of these things. You know, it's there. One thing that struck me was at a time when a lot of films were largely in long shot, they pretty much stuck to medium shots. So you can see the actors pretty well, and the acting is pretty good and naturalistic at the time. Uh, the downside is you do kind of feel like you're looking at a rather tight set a lot yeah. of times in these films. Yeah, there's some quotes from some of the directors about you know the the 16 foot line that they would have. Um, and how they would make that sharp. I mean, because that was part of the thing is they wanted to keep everybody in focus. Right. So they, uh, they'd set the camera for a certain focal. They didn't have quite the depth of field that we know of today. Uh, especially, you know, you needed a lot of light for the film because the, the speed of the film was pretty low. So you needed lots of light and you didn't have much depth of field because the aperture was wide open. So, you know, I, 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 and it was more, it, it wasn't quite like filming a play. Because they did have some cuts and they did use uh, some analytical close-ups, uh, and their sophistication got, you know, markedly 
improved over the period of the company's history in terms of uh, the storytelling and using some of the language of cinema that we know today. All right, so we heard how you finally got to see some of these films. Right. Tell me about your quest to find (laughs) and make available as many of them as possible. Yeah, it's a great story, I think. Um, You know, after I found the first two films of Blackhawk, I said, gee, there must be more. And uh, I contacted Library of Congress, and it turns out they had a bunch. And then I contacted um, George Eastman House. They had some. I did some international travel with my business. I worked for Intel for 28 years and was over in Europe and would go visit the British Film Institute. They have the second largest collection of Thanhauser titles because, you know, Thanhauser distributed from the very beginning in Europe through London. And then when I was in Amsterdam on business, I visited the film archive there and they had a number of films and posters and, um, you know, the Thanhauser films had, had a worldwide footprint. And every time I go to these places, I say, can I get a copy, uh, you know, a film copy? And uh, so I would pay today, which seems like a reasonably small amount for a 60-millimeter reduction print of some of the 35 in their collection. And that really kind of started it. So I would uh, have these films transferred to beta or VA or low band umatic you know i mean this is this, i mean yeah, i i had all sorts of media right and um then i then i, I had this idea i said you know i bet you there are other people would like to see this so i made some vhs tapes for distribution back in the late 90s or early 90s i guess and these uh, vhs tapes you know we would duplicate the tapes at a duplicator in town and then put labels on them and in 1994 i had a website i put up the thanhauser.org site came up in that time frame you know people were interested uh the big issue back then was is that scholars and uh, cinephiles uh to see thanhauser films would have to travel to the archives and get a screening and schedule it and pay money to travel and all that so when vhs became you know home media that was more readily available this turned out to be a good way to get the films out so that kind of started it and then in the late 1990s when vhs was being replaced by dvds um, i transferred those early vhs tapes to dvd and those are still available Uh, there's there were six discs there and then i kept finding more and more films through my work with archives and i became very much engaged in the academic community um researching and presenting at conferences like the Society for Cinema Media Studies, SCMS, and I got pulled into the uh, women in the silent screen community. When we went to Guadalajara, I was invited to go make a presentation about Gertrude's role in the film world to the women in silent screen. They really appreciated it and have done a number of other things, wrote papers on uh, Florence Labadee and so on. So I've kept up this... uh, database I found of all the films, Thanhauser produced 1,086 titles. And to date, uh, around the world, I found 260 surviving prints of Thanhauser films. Now, some of those are duplicates. For example, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that first film I found, there's eight different copies at eight (laughs) different locations. It's a very popular film. Same thing with Cinderella. I think there's seven copies of Cinderella. But some some of the prints are unique like this uh, pillars of society the ibsen print right that's on here that's at the uh, george eastman house and uh, then there is the other 
other one, A Doll's House, which came from a colleague of mine, uh, Hiroshi Komatsu in Japan. And uh, his story is, is amazing about how this film actually ended up on this DVD. He he is a silent film aficionado and teaches silent film at uh, uh, Waseda University in Tokyo. And he and I met at a conference in England uh, at Brighton. I think it was a Women in the Silent Screen conference. And he said, oh yeah, I have a couple of Thanhauser films. And uh, he sa I said, well, how'd you get them? He says, well, I was in Paris. It was at a flea market. And in the flea market, he found two nitrate prints of uh, Thanhauser films, and he bought them. And they put them in his handbag and took them back to Japan in the airplane. Nitrate prints on an airplane. So. <laughs> That's almost as bad as snakes on a plane. But he got them back there, and uh, then he made reduction prints. And um, when I was doing this volume... I decided to include the, the two Ibsen films as kind of the headliners because uh, there's a lot of interest in those. And so he let me make a copy of uh, A Doll's House, and then I, after a couple of years of working with uh, George Eastman House, I finally got permission to make a copy of Pillars of Society. You know, both of those are from Norway, and I got uh, Eric Frederick Hessen, who is uh, with the Nor Norwegian Library, as a scholar there, he did a commentary track that's on the DVD and online that gives you a little bit more insight into what's going on in the story and some of the background and Thanhauser's realization yeah. of the uh, of the films. And that's become something that's been very useful. I've been doing these commentary tracks on a number of the films. David Copperfield has a, a lovely commentary track by Joss Marsh, who is a Dickens scholar. And then... Um, also had um, a commentary track for A Picture of Dorian Gray, which really adds a lot more depth to the story of Dorian Gray. And then uh, on this one, I've got Eric uh, doing commentary for Pillars of Society and A Doll's House. So it gives a little bit more understanding of, again, the storyline and the background behind it, as well as Stanhauser's production. I read a Wikipedia summary uh, halfway through Pillars of Society, uh, which certainly helped me there. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> the, the one real version is kind of what's going on, who's who, and yeah. Needless to say, silent films that did not have any sort of music track on them as you track them down. Uh, and so you've been adding that as well. I don't know what other... Yeah, si as we know, silent films were never silent. Right. Um, they just had no um, synchronized sound. And... Um, so there was typical, in the early days, somebody beating on a piano, uh, and by the time you get to the picture palaces, you had an organ that had multiple instruments on it, or you had a full-blown full or, uh, orchestra. So um, I've been engaging with uh, numerous accompaniments. Uh, the one that has probably spent the most time doing work for me is Ben Modell, sure. who runs the uh, Silent Comedy Hour on... Sundays with uh, Steve Massa, uh, but I've also had some other notable accompanists. Um, Stephen Horn does some work for me on this uh, new DVD set. I have a, another collaborator who did the Toodles, Tom and Trouble, which is uh, Nathan Avakian. We, we crossed paths because we worked together on uh, a film festival that I, I co-founded, the uh, Youth Silent Film Festival, which is for kids that are 20 and under to make a three-minute silent film. And we give them 10 soundtracks to pick from, like a horror soundtrack or a romance soundtrack or 
you know, pictures. There's, there's 10 of them. And so the kids use those soundtracks and make a film around it. So Nathan and I had done a lot of work together on that festival. And I said, how about doing some soundtracks for me? So he did a couple. And I think his best work for me so far is the soundtrack on Toodles, Tom and Trouble, which is brilliant, I think. Yeah, you got to have something that, that works with the films so that they have that auditory element to them. Did you have to do any other kind of restoration to the films? Well, actually, I left all of the restoration and preservation to all the archives. I mean, I'm not equipped or want to do that. Um, you know, I, 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 go f- I go find the films in the archives, and hopefully they do the preservation and restoration work. Sometimes I get copies from the archives, and um, when they do the transfers from nitrate, you know, a lot of times the perfs are busted, and so they have these synchronization issues. It comes comes out, and they have to back the film up and start over. So I get the raw transfer with all of these jumps and cuts and backups and everything on it. I'm a film editor and a filmmaker as well in my spare time, so uh, I use was using Final Cut, now I'm on Adobe Premiere. I have to go back and, uh, you know, edit edit out all of the transfer issues. And sometimes there's some color correction, or if you will, basically uh, brightness and contrast to sharpen the film up a bit. In some cases, the, uh, the inner titles are in sad shape. Like um, A Doll's House, when they did the transfer over in Japan, about a third of the, the inner title was cut off. And so I went back and uh, recreated digitally the inner titles to replace the ones that were cut off so you can read it so that's the kind of work I've been doing once you get the transfer of the preserved film they sometimes need a little post-processing all right so you have a new set that's out um, both on DVD and, and it's on Vimeo you can rent it there as well Right. Tell me some films that you would recommend people check out if they really want to get to know Thanhauser. And all of these they can find one way or another through Thanhauser.org. Right. I think the uh, the key thing is is that on the Thanhauser.org site, um, I think there's 57 films that are available online that uh, come from the early days, uh, the volumes 1, 2, and 3, and 4, 5, and 6. Uh, most of those films, if not all, are available online uh, that you can watch at no charge. So if you just go and on the on the main page, there's this big blue thing that says DVD video. If you click on the DVD video, it'll take you to a page that basically shows you all the films that are available on all media. The ones that are probably the most notable, uh, there's two of them that are on the National Film Registry. One is called The Evidence of the Film. It has filmmaking as a subject of the film to solve a murder mystery, or not a murder mystery, a dastardly stockbroker uh, tries to cheat one of his clients out of their their money. And uh, the evidence of the film uses film to solve that that mystery, and it's, it's got a good story. Again, another happy ending. And then the other one that is on the National Film Registry, which I think is one of the more significant films that Thanhauser did in 1912, is called The Cry of the Children. Uh, the Cry of the Children basically tells the story of child labor abuse back in the time frame of, you know, when the Triangle Waste Shirt Factory right. had the fire. And it's a sad tale. It's it's not one of the happy endings. But it made a, it made a definite political statement. I think it contributed to the dialogue, the national dialogue that ended up in um, legislation to uh, protect kids from working in textile industry. So I think those two are really really important 
on the newest set that we just released, volumes 13, 14, and 15, um, besides, you know, the two Ibsen films, um, there's some interesting films. One is, uh, one is one of the rare documentary films that Thanhauser did called The Austin Flood. Austin, Pennsylvania had a, a dam that was built by, a, if you will, a, a paper baron who had a paper manufacturing plant, and he needed lots and lots of water, and so he built a dam, and uh, the dam burst, and it flooded the town of Austin, Pennsylvania, wiping it out and killing 78 people. Hmm. And uh, Thanhauser sent a film crew there the day after it happened, and they have the devastation captured, and it got quite a number of headlines. I think another one that's one of my favorites is Star of the Sideshow, which is about uh, a young girl who is uh, reported as a midget or a dwarf, if you want to be correct. I think uh, it's called a midget in the film. And uh, she ends up going to join a sideshow, and she falls in love with a seven-foot giant. <laughs> so you had this real juxtaposition. And uh, the giant falls in love with a snake charmer, though. <laughs> But uh, there's a happy ending again. The other one that's on this here that's really great, I think, is uh, another kind of a documentary film that was mentioned in some of the Nitroville blogs is uh, An American in the Making. It was more of a, a film about uh, safety procedures at the U.S. Steel plant, more propaganda than a narrative story, although there is a narrative underpinning to that particular story. But I think that back in that day, what I remember reading about this is that it was not okay to make those kind of films. So they made a, a narrative story out of it that ended up telling the, the, the safety right. protocols that they wanted to go through. So I think those are some of the ones that are worth watching. Again, you know, there's, there's 90, 96 films available either online or on DVD. You know, one of the interesting things is, is when I started this project like three years ago, I did a survey to my Facebook page. I think there's over a thousand likes on the Facebook page. And I said, I'm going to do another set of Thanhauser films. Should I make them available online or should I make them on DVD? And the survey came back. You know, you can do the, the poll, right? It came back 50-50. Half the people said I want it on DVD and the other half said I'll take it online. Well, now that I, I did both... And if you go look at the the Thanhauser site, you can get a link to the online version. And I decided you can rent each film individually. If you just want to watch Toodles, Tom, and Trouble, you can rent that for $1.99, and that's it. Or you can rent all of them for $19.95, or you can buy the DVD set for $19.95. So same price, online or on DVD. But, you know, I, this was launched, what, a month ago at... Uh, Pordenone, virtually all the orders, and there's been dozens of orders, like multiple dozens, I think I've probably got 50 or 60 DVD orders, and I have one online <laughs> payment. So the survey was wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
a couple of free Thanhauser shorts, and links for the DVD and Vimeo releases of many more, will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. The music for this segment comes from the latest Thanhauser releases, and includes clips from Nathan Avakian's score for Toodles, Tom, and Trouble, and Ben Modell's scores for Idol of the Hour and The Girl of the Grove. Thanks to my guests, Alan Lewis Rickman and Ned Thanhauser. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And would it hurt you to leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts? Thanks.